1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Joan Maya, a postdoc at the New York University, and I'm your host for today's episode. We'll be talking to Professor Kenneth Saltman in his new book, The Annihilation Effect, Digital Education Privatization, AI, and the False Promise of Bodies and Numbers, published in 2022 by the MIT Press. Kenneth Saltman is a professor of Education Policy Studies at the University of Illinois in Chicago. The book is about a current contradiction in today's use of facts. As the author writes, on the one hand, everything must be measured, quantified, and subject to data analytics. And on the other hand, every domain is facing a crisis of truth and legitimacy, in which facts appear to be free-floating, ungrounded, and arbitrary. In Alienation Effect, Professor Saltman explains the educational, technological, and ideological preconditions for this contemporary crisis of truth and agency and explores the contradictions and competing visions for the future of education that lie at the center of the problem. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, João. It's, it's nice to talk with you today. Yeah,
0: great. So to get us started, uh, I ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your academic interests.
1: Sure. I'm a professor of educational policy studies at University of Illinois, Chicago. I've, um, in my career, I have studied a lot about the privatization of public education and more broadly, neoliberal educational restructuring. And I've investigated that in relation to a number of different uh, areas, including neoliberal globalization, uh, the control of the body, questions of culture, the relationship of schooling, And curriculum to popular culture, uh, transformations of pedagogy, uh, and I've always sought to tie this subject into both questions of policy and politics and also uh, the tradition of critical pedagogy.
0: Thank you. And where did the idea for writing this specific book came from?
1: Uh, All of my books somehow come out of a some smaller piece of a prior book. And so this um, this was an idea that appeared in my uh, prior book, The Swindle of Innovative Educational Finance. And so in, uh, I wrote, um, I framed my projects as books, and a, a lot of my early books were about uh, what most people now are familiar with in terms of educational privatization, such as charter expansion, voucher expansion, um, scholarship tax credit uh, creation, um school commercialism and uh, around uh 2010 i started to write more and more about new educational privatization forms and particularly digital ones ones that um started to get promoted by philanthrocapitalists capitalists like the chan zuckerberg initiative emerson uh initiative omidyar um the Um, the ways that some of the key players in um, the promotion of for-profit education before had pivoted and started to get involved in investing in for-profit digital education. So for example, um, the New School Venture uh, Fund is um, an investment educational for-profit startup fund that was um, a key player in promoting charter school expansion, and they became um, a key player in funding and developing for-profit educational privatization digital products. So, for example, one of the one of the products that they uh, got behind was um, Class Dojo, which is in something like ninety-five percent of all us all U.S. public school classrooms. Which is a, it's a kind of social media app that allows teachers and parents to track students' um, behavior. It's a kind of um, surveillance uh, technology that also um, exists to capture student data and use it to market private pay-for-fee services to parents in social and emotional learning, mindfulness, growth mindset, and other kind of hot... topics in education. And that's that's actually a key idea um, that appears in The Alienation of Fact and also in um, a subsequent book that's in production now, The Disaster of uh, Resilience. The the fact that um, social and emotional learning programs uh, have increasingly become the stuff that sells digital privatization products, like Class Dojo and many others.
0: That's very interesting. So the book, more generally, is about this this contradiction that you observe between this faith in fact, right, this that, that is in public, academic, in policy discourse, and this disregard for fact, in evidence, argument, and in truth, in these very same domains. Uh, it, more generally, what you're calling the the alienation effect. Uh, so you talk about this both in the context of public education and in the news media. So can you tell us more about where you observe this contradiction in these domains?
1: Sure, sure. So you see it you see it in policing, for example, with CompStat, you, um, where uh, police are encouraged to uh, increase the, st- the statistics for uh, arrests. And um, you see it in journalism, you see it in the humanities, um, and of course in education, um, uh, among other fields. And it's a kind of audit logic taken from business uh, where um, the uh, juking the stats becomes the primary goal and it obscures and eclipses other aims and goals of the institution. So, um, for example, community safety gets eclipsed by upping the numbers with, with, you know, comp stat and policing, um, in, um, a, a key idea of the alienation of fact comes, it really came from, uh, an insight that Theodore Adorno had, and this is, this is brought up in a number of chapters, but Adorno, um, recognized that uh, in capitalism, um, everything gets translated into its exchange value and is rendered abstract. And this produces an allure for the concrete. It, It produces a desire for people to ground the certainty of things and meanings and so, you know, this is in the very title of the book, but so numbers are one of the things that promise a kind of false guarantee of certainty and solidity. And one of the things I emphasize in the book is that we, we actually have to build on Adorno's insight and recognize that now, as so much of our daily lives is mediated through screens and data um, and abstraction in that form, that the push is even stronger to the, the desire grows to attempt to ground the truth of things in seemingly um, concrete forms. And so, so for example, um, a positivist ideology that says that um, truth can be a collection of facts that can be quantified, that becomes more appealing. So in education for a long time, we've seen this in the form of standardized testing where, uh, uh, truth is deemed, um, well, the, the, the values and assumptions and ideologies behind claims to truth get obscured and truth claims get positioned as, um, uh, somehow valid and worthwhile and meaningful on their own. And then that, um, the, uh, outcome of the tests can be quantified measured and those numbers stand in for learning when that's not learning it's a it's a numerical representation of learning um part of what the book the book runs uh talks about the the new forms of positivism in digital educational products uh such as ai products personalized learning uh, biometric pedagogy products um and a number of others, um, uh, the use of avatar scripted instruction reading programs. And um, it shows how the same obscuring of values, assumptions, ideologies, and power in the older forms of positivism are now being carried forward in these new digital education products. And so, so this is kind of diametrically opposed to some Critical educational traditions like critical pedagogy, which emphasize the need to connect learning to questions of power, politics, ethics, history, social context, student experience, and subjectivity, and to um, make learning the basis of reflection upon both subjectivity and the social world. So, um, so there's a big political dimension to the continuation and amplification of positivist ideology in these new products and programs um, that the the book is talking about. Now, the other side of this is that um, the false promise of certainty is being grounded in bodies. And so the body has increasingly come to be viewed, um, as I discuss, in essentialized ways. And and um, and so, for example, there's a chapter about how this plays out in conspiracy theory and how um, um, the the attraction that people feel towards uh, so-called strongmen um, in politics owes in part to an equation of truth with authority and a an attempt to understand um social events and phenomena through um the the workings of individuals who have a kind of mystified agency a kind of super agency that's grounded in their bodies and increasingly people are scapegoated uh as um uh social problems and villains for, uh, um, by, the, by, their, um, by their essence, which is also grounded in their bodies. Um, and so this is not just a problem on, of the political right where, um, for example, this is seen in rising white supremacist movements that um, attempt to uh, reclaim essentialized identity um, there's also, there are also strains of, um, identity politics, progressivism that, um, go back to, uh, attempt to claim the truth of, uh, individual subjectivity in their bodies. So for example, um, white men are inherently, uh, guilty and culpable and, um, uh, by virtue of their, um identity positions which is grounded in the body and part of the problem with this is there's nowhere to go politically and pedagogically with developing for example white anti-racist movements um and so you know the flip side of this would be um anti-essentialism in other words a recognition that um People's identity positions are not grounded in their bodies, and actually people's identities and their ideological positions and their views, perspectives, um, don't necessarily line up.
0: Yeah, thank you. So, from my my reading of the book, and you tell me if I'm misinterpreting that, uh, you, you argue that the privatization of public education and the concentration of news media ownership both have contributed to this trend uh can you tell us a little bit more about why you think that's that's the case
1: yeah um so the uh the new forms of digital educational privatization that the book details um rather than criticizing or challenging or creating the conditions to challenge long-standing anti-critical educational trends uh, actually carry them forward and and amplify them and so there's a little bit I think part of what the book is it doesn't use this language but it's doing it's recognizing that there's a kind of feedback loop at work so like a, a key idea that opens the book is there is the the explanation that we're now facing material precarity and symbolic precarity So material precarity means that there's uh, radically growing economic inequality, worsening concentration of wealth at the top of the economy, um, in growing wage inequality, uh, and during the pandemic, these inequalities and concentrations of wealth got radically worse. Um, There's also uh, symbolic precarity, as the book gets into, in the sense that the means of, uh, for people to act on and address public problems are actually shrinking. So, for example, um, critical education has been uh, eroded and positivist forms of education have been expanded, for example, in the United States since 2000. Teaching to the test has become normalized. Uh, and so the the use of education as a means to interpret and understand and act on the world has been radically eroded journalism due to the concentration of ownership over, uh, media companies, investigative journalism has been radically eroded in the past decades, for example. So the, some of the key means that people have, um, another example, um, studies have shown that, um, policy enactment is now extremely, extremely rare for people to achieve unless it's by lobbyists and it's purchased. Uh, So for example, enacting legislative changes. Uh, And so the avenues that people have to affect social transformation in the area towards emancipation and justice have been um, reduced. And so, the the on the one hand you got the material precarity, on the other you have the symbolic precarity, and this has created a um, um, an inflated desire for people to, um, in some way, make sense of things and ground their understandings, and people increasingly are turning to bad ways of doing this. The book is arguing. That takes the form of these essentialized bodies and uh, kind of simplistic quantification of things that actually further disallow it. Further disempowers them because it erodes their capacity to understand what's going on. You see this with conspiracy theory, for example. So um, instead of understanding that um, social Transformation is affected by an interplay of social structures like economic structure, political structure, cultural systems and individual agency Uh, and to need to understand that individual subjectivity is socially formed and in turn, individual subjects form society. Um, Simplistic conspiracy theories explain social events through a cabal of conspiracy conspiring actors who have some kind of uh, incomprehensible capacity to change things. So there's um, part of what's missing is theory, that um, people need to make sense of the social world, to make sense of what they experience, to be able to understand how to act on and change the things they're experiencing. But if they can't understand the things they're experiencing, it becomes very difficult to get a grasp on how they might act with other people collectively um, to affect political change. So When I said there's a kind of feedback loop, um, we're in a situation where um, these conditions of precarity have driven people to to seek out um, worse means of um, understanding and acting on the world. so that's a that's a key idea that the book is is trying to address, and so the you know the solution that it gives is um, in the educational realm, critical pedagogy, um, but also struggles for democratic social relations in multiple institutions. Um, now the the book is not all uh, it, it doesn't put forward a cynical uh, perspective. It's actually hopeful in certain ways about what might be done. So, for example, on the one hand, a lot of the AI products and projects that the book criticizes as having reactionary pedagogies, um, pedagogies that um, are uh, transmission oriented, that that treat knowledge as something that's delivered, not something that un- is understood socially. Um, it doesn't have to be that way. So like the AI chapter, for example, talks about how Uh, we can look to an art example uh, that uh, forensic architecture did at the 2019 Whitney Biennale um, called Triple Chaser, where they took AI technology and they used it to um, get people around the world uh, who were living in areas where states committed violence against the the civilian population, uh, people used their cell phones to identify tear gas canisters. And those were uploaded to the website of the project. And um, the images were uh, scanned. And the um, These military objects were recognized and then a map was created tracing the origins of these military objects. And what the project discovered is that one company, Safariland, which is a weapons manufacturer, um, had provided tear gas to police and military all over the world that had been used on civilian populations. And the the project further discovered that um, this company was run by... uh, um, uh, a person who um, was serving on uh, as chair of the board of the Whitney Biennale where the exhibit was being shown. And so the activist organizations worked in conjunction with this political art organization, and um, ultimately uh, he was forced to resign from the board and the, the, the use of um, the relationship between corporate profit and state violence was highlighted in this art project. So part of what I'm doing in the book is suggesting that this is a great model for how these kinds of new technologies can be used to actually um, highlight and explain the holistic links between individuals, uh, broader social structures, state and corporate institutions, and to understand how society works, the workings of power, And to give people social power to actually do something to try and uh, challenge, for example, social violence or to enact more emancipatory social and political uh, social forms. Thank you.
0: Um, So, yeah, the book doesn't paint necessarily, like you say, that pessimistic view of those new technologies and actually by criticizing them provides. Uh, some insights into how they can also be, like you say, emancipatory. Um, so just for, for listeners to kind of have a, an idea of how, how the book is structured, you basically outline this, this general contradiction in the beginning. You present uh, some theoretical background uh, and some general argument for what you're going to flesh out later on. And then you go into more detail into several examples, some of which you already touched upon, uh, right now, of examples in educational context and specifically digital educational tools that are contributing to this contradiction. So, I also wanted to make sure to kind of discuss some of these examples. Uh, specifically, you you talk about um, to 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 to, to in, a, in a in a whole chapter about the legal foundation, right, and the, the things they're doing to to quantify play. Uh, so. Uh, can you also tell us a little bit about that and what exactly they are doing and how does that fit into this general trend?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, and that, that's a really good example of what the book, is, the phenomenon that the, the whole book is really about, which which is the um, the the way that um, the the bodies of students are being targeted for datification and control. And um, so, what the what that chapter is really about is the, um, the Organization of Economic Collaboration and Development worked with Lego Foundation, which is the it's the sort of philanthropic Foundation um, which is it's not exactly that. it's more of a kind of promotional wing of the Lego corporation. Lego is I think almost everyone is familiar with Legos, little plastic blocks um, Lego is the lar- the world's largest toy maker. And um, so for some of us, uh, uh, when we were growing up, we played with these blocks and they came in a bag or a box and it w- you would make, you'd use your imagination and you make whatever you want. Well, increasingly, Legos come in sets that encourage students to um, follow recipes or we could say algorithms to build things that are actually... Um, corporate products that are licensed by other um, large media companies that um, Lego is partnering with. So they partner with uh, a whole range of movie companies and um, uh, comic book companies and toy makers, but mostly um, media content. And um, increasingly, Lego has gotten involved in interfacing their toy, their plastic toy block products with digital apps, tablet, uh, software in order to, um, uh, have things like robot toys or things, things that, um, uh, things that increasingly involve the, the, the making of data, the use of data by students. And increasingly, Lego has also gotten into education itself. They have a whole education wing and they're looking to uh, sell as much of their product as they can around the world. So one of the ways they're able, they're, they're trying to do this is by working with these supranational organizations like the OECD and making play into a global learning standard that can be measured and quantified just like there are the um, global standardized test comparisons that the OECD um, oversees and and facilitates. Um, So uh, why is Lego interested in doing this? Lego um, wants to, by making play into a quantified learning standard, they can justify the Sales of their product to countries all over the world. Um, almost every country is attempting to um, increase their um, uh, prestige and visibility by the way by their standing on these international comparison tests, and um, with reference to these these numbers, these comparison numbers. Uh, So the chapter, the chapter is getting at um, some of the deeper questions about, well, what's wrong with quantifying play? What's wrong with imagining play in this way? Um, And so part of what part of what it gets into is the um, the reduction of play as imagination and the. Increasing treatment of play as something that's both instrumental for some other use and vocationally oriented, treated it framed as something in the service of uh, work. Uh, so there, there are more dimensions to the to the chapter, but I think I'll I, I think I'll leave it at that. I think one of the things that's interesting is that it illustrates the thesis of the book um, with regard to the the turn to um, shaping and controlling bodies and the use of um, numbers as a kind of false promise of certainty and solidity in the face of growing material and symbolic precarity.
0: Yeah, thanks. Uh, so yeah, the book has several other examples. One of the chapters that I found particularly fascinating is the one about... Uh, conspiracy theories, and you already touched on that a bit, Uh, so for the sake of time, I I probably won't ask uh, any more specific questions on that, uh, unless there's something that that you'd like to to mention that hasn't uh, been mentioned already, Uh, but for now, I, I kind of wanted to spend some time as well on your chapter where you discuss how this trend is also prevalent not only within conservative politics, but within progressive politics as well, and how the use of language like privilege checking, virtual signaling, safe spaces, and affinity groups uh, is part of and contributes to, to this alienation effect as well.
1: Yeah, so um, that chapter's is really um, focused on the... Um the body and the way that, um, and I, I did touch on this already, but the way that essentialized views of the body and particularly uh, race are, um, ha- have been growing. And, the, um, and so part of the argument is that this is at odds with um, a much better tradition of thinking about the body in an anti-essentialist way, assuming that the meaning of bodies can't be determined and fixed by reference to biology. Um, and so some of, some of what that chapter gets at is the way that, um, privatized forms of, um, uh, redress actually make it difficult to build political solidarity around, for example, anti-racist politics. So like, um, one example that's discussed is the the growth of affinity groups in schools. For example, where um, uh, African American students are encouraged to create uh, affinity groups with other African American students and to see um, problems of race and uh, racism. In the institutional context, as a problem that they will deal with together, rather than, for example, treating that as a problem which is actually predominantly produced um, um, by people other than them, and and rather than having public projects that are actually um, anti-racist and uh, involve all students across race to address uh, the problem of uh, white supremacy. Um, Other examples that it deals with include um, safe spaces, which also um, uh, uh, problematically frame um, certain places on campuses as, um, as safe and kind of de facto, define the rest of public space as unsafe space. And so part of part of what the chapter is attempting to, to ask people to think about is the ways that uh, emancipatory politics um, for gender equality, racial equality, uh, sexual equality, um, can be formulated in public and social ways rather than in privatized ways, and so a lot of a, a lot of the ways it gets framed in privatized ways is with reference to the body, the discomfort people might feel with engaging with other people, as if discomfort, comfort, or discomfort is the ultimate arbiter of um, ethical, social, and political values. Uh, so the, the the effort is to think. Publicly uh, about politics and pedagogical projects.
0: Yeah, thank you. I think that's a that's a very interesting in point in argument more generally. Uh, so you mentioned a little bit about some of circumstances in which um, those new technologies can be used in more emancipatory ways. So to kind of. Finish on our conversation, know, in, in a more positive note. I kind of wanted to hear from you. Uh, what are some of the insights that you like institutions, policymakers, to get from the arguments in the book? And what are some of the things that can be done to use those new technologies in, in different ways?
1: Sure. Um, so, I what I guess what I would like is is first of all um, that. Uh, <laughs> that they recognize the destructiveness of, um, positivist forms of education that, uh, de-link learning from both broader social contexts and, uh, and, and particular, uh, contexts of learning and de-link learning from student subjectivity. So, and so this, applies to, to the time prior to digital educational privatization. But, but um, part of what I want them to get is a recognition that it's a mistake to build these new technology products and bring them into schools in ways that repeat and amplify some of the worst trends in education over the past 40 years. Um, education needs to be seen as a crucial precondition for democratic society and the use of technology as a tool should be measured by that capacity, not by the idea that you're going to transmit knowledge like it's a commodity uh, where you're going to turn on a tap and pour knowledge into students. Right. Um, So the, the, the uses of technology need to be seen not as inherently good or bad, and increasingly they're seen as inherently good, inherently innovative, inherently utopian, Um, but they ought to be seen as potentially a tool for emancipatory forms of teaching that can help students comprehend the social world, comprehend themselves, comprehend themselves in relation to the social world. One of the biggest confusions right now is around social and emotional learning, which is a huge trend in, in U.S. education. Um, The right, the political right, people like Ron DeSantis, they're they're, um, denouncing it as being some sort of leftist plot. Um, Many liberals and progressives are defending it. Part of what's wrong with social and emotional learning is it actually doesn't help students understand what it is socially and politically that produces the feelings they experience. It's about registering feelings in order to learn self-control for students and so it's, it's very problematic uh, in terms of democratic educational practices. And so um, that's one of the things that comes out of this book that I would like to see policymakers and legislators comprehend is that um, if, if emotion and subject, student subjectivity is going to be taken seriously, it needs to be taken seriously in terms of students learning How society actually works, how social structures actually produce experience, how the kind of economic structure and political structure that we have actually produces the experience that they have and how in turn, understanding that students can become agents, they can become actors that can have an impact on those social formations. Um, so that's that. The fact that all of that is, in a sense, written out of contemporary educational reform is a big problem, and um, and I think it's one that might be able to be addressed.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Jen, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being on the podcast today. Uh, we've been talking about the book, The Alienation Effect. Digital Education, Privatization, AI, and the False Promise of Bodies and Numbers by Professor Kenneth Saltman, and recently published by the MIT Press. Thank you for listening, and until next time.
1: If I could just add one thing here, um, the book is available open access on the MIT Press website. Yes, thank you. I forgot
0: to mention that. Thank you, Ken. <laughs> thank you for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. And
1: Thanks for uh, talking with me today, yeah, sure. Thank you.